Welcome to the Eurovision Travel Guide. In this monthly series, we'll be exploring a country in the Eurovision Song Contest, learning about some of their entries, their national selection methods, and some other noteworthy points. This month, we are taking a look at France. This is ESC 101. Bonjour, bon après-midi, bonne soirée. Bienvenue à CEC Center, votre maison de l'histoire et de l'obscurité de l'Eurovision. C'est le podcast où nous regardons le concours Eurovision de la chanson à travers les années pour découvrir l'histoire du plus grand concours international de musique télévisée au monde. Bienvenue dans l'épisode 20. Je m'appelle Alexandre. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Welcome to ESC 101, your home of Eurovision history and obscurity. This is the podcast where we take a look at the Eurovision Song Contest throughout the years to uncover the story behind the world's largest international televised music competition. Welcome to episode 20. My name is Alexander. It's really interesting how the name of the podcast changes from ESC 101 to CEC when translating it to French. As ESC is the shortened form of Eurovision Song Contest, and translating it into French turns the ESC into CEC. And of course, changing the 101 to Santeur is pretty straightforward. We've also hit the episode 20 mark, and it's incredible how far we've come. We've overcome the initial hurdles that many podcasts face, and I am happy to be on track to cover so many topics in the future. I have my topics planned out until June, so I've got lots of research ahead of me. Speaking of lots of research, I'm going to be straightforward with you. France is a country that has entire university courses dedicated to it. The history, the culture, and its time in Eurovision is extensive, and I don't think it can be thoroughly covered in a single episode unless I decide to do like a five-hour expose, which I don't think is a very good idea. So I'm going to be giving you a condensed and thin version of France at Eurovision. And I imagine if you're looking at the length of this episode and you think this is going to be condensed and thin, yeah, it really is. Feel free to pause and take breaks as you need to. There's a lot of information packed into this episode, and I'm going to be skimming and skipping over entire sections of France's participation, particularly if it's mundane or if large bulks of it is just internal selections. If you are interested in hearing opinions on every single French entry, I encourage you to check out the Eurovision Forever project on the Deux Point podcast. Jack Eaton, the former co-host, and Elizabeth Allen, the current host, commented on and ranked every single Eurovision entry from 1956 to 2022. They covered France up to 2019 in five episodes, as well as the 2021 and 2022 entries in their respective episodes. So if you'd like to hear some spicy opinions on France at the Eurovision Song Contest, I highly encourage you to check out the series. It's really fascinating and loads of fun. But in any event, we are here to learn about one of the big five in the Eurovision Song Contest. So let's jump right into France's history at the Eurovision Song Contest. France, known officially as la République Française, or in English, the French Republic, is located all over the world. Seriously, France has territory all over the world. 
Metropolitan France, the area in Europe that most people will recognize by its iconic hexagon shape, borders Luxembourg and Belgium to the north, Germany, Switzerland, and Italy to the east, Monaco to the south, Andorra and Spain to the southwest, and they technically share a land border with the United Kingdom if you count the Channel Tunnel, which connects the two countries. Metropolitan France also includes the island of Corsica, which sits north of the Italian island of Sardinia. France, however, has more than just the metropolitan landmass. There is much, much more. France is divided into 18 regions, kind of like provinces or states, but not really. It's it's close enough. To the people of France, I apologize for butchering your political system, but it is your fault for making it so complicated. Thirteen of these regions exist in metropolitan France, with the other five regions being overseas regions, which include French Guiana, which borders Suriname and Brazil in South America, Guadeloupe, Martinique, Mayotte, and Réunion, with those last four being islands. These five overseas regions are the French outermost regions of the European Union, and along with St. Martin, are the overseas portions of the European Union. They use the euro, however, they are outside the Schengen area and the EU VAT area. However, metropolitan France is part of the Schengen area and the EU VAT area. Apart from the 18 regions, France also has overseas collectivities. These are basically the remnants of the French Empire that are still under French control, integrating into the Republic by democratic referendums from the local populations. There are five overseas collectivities. French Polynesia in the Pacific, which is also labeled as an overseas country but is basically identical to an overseas collectivity. Again, complication abounds here. There's also St. Bartholomew in the Caribbean, St. Martin, which is the northern half of the island also named St. Martin, with the southern half belonging to the Netherlands, which means that France does technically share a land border with the Netherlands in the Caribbean, St. Pierre et Miquelon, which is a group of islands off the coast of Newfoundland in Canada. Fun fact, St. Pierre et Miquelon is the last remaining territory that was part of New France that is still under French control to this day. So, to my fellow Canadians, if you want to fly all the way to Europe without having to cross an ocean, you can hop on a very short flight or a little ferry to St. Pierre et Miquelon and be in France without having to leave North America. And finally, there is Wallace and Futuna, three small islands in the Pacific Ocean that count as the last remaining overseas territories. Then, to top things off, there are three more entities which fit into their own separate little categories. The French Southern and Antarctic lands are an overseas territory, basically the same as an overseas collectivity, except this territory has no permanent population. New Caledonia is a sui generis collectivity. I don't speak Latin, so I apologize for pronouncing that term. Basically, it's not part of the European Union, but is instead developing slowly into its own country, with citizens holding both French and New Caledonian citizenship. It's seriously complicated. And finally, the last vestige of French land, we arrive at Clipperton Island, which is an uninhabited coral atoll located southwest of Mexico in the Pacific Ocean, holding the title of State Private Property under the direct authority of the French government, administered by the French Minister of the Overseas Territories. And that is France. 18 regions, 5 overseas collectivities, and 3 miscellaneous landmasses. Simple. For the purposes of this episode, the demographics I'm going to mention are of metropolitan France and do not include overseas populations. 
France has a population of 65.8 million people with a land area of around 551,695 square kilometers or around 213,000 square miles. The capital city is Paris and is probably one of the most recognizable cities in the world, with popular landmarks including the Eiffel Tower, the Arc de Triomphe, the Louvre, Notre Dame Cathedral, and countless others. I'm going to be honest with you, I've been to Paris twice and I got bored of Paris really fast. Once you've seen the monuments, it just kind of gets dull and really crowded. It's like one of those one-in-one type of deals where it's just, you do it once to say you've done it, and then afterwards it's just really disappointing. France does have plenty of other cities and communities to visit as well, and if you ever find yourself in France, I encourage you to check them out as well. Places like Lyon, Cannes, Nice, Marseille, Toulon, Bordeaux, and Strasbourg are all fantastic places to visit, each with their own rich cultural heritage. France is a founding member of the European Union and is integrated into all of its systems, including the Euro, the Schengen Zone, and much more. France is also a founding member of the United Nations and NATO. The history of France does start with the Roman Republic dating back to 509 BC, but that's a lot of history to deal with, so I'm going to skim over about 2,000 years of French history in just a few minutes. Again, there are entire university courses that deal exclusively with French history, so we're just getting the basics here. There are lots of videos on YouTube that explain the history of France better than I do, so if you're interested in watching one of those, I'll leave a link on the show notes for the episode on our website. To begin France's history, we turn ourselves to the split of the Roman Empire. After the fall of the Western Roman Empire, the territory splits into multiple kingdoms, some of which occupy parts of modern-day France, but the one that we're focusing on is the Kingdom of the Franks. This kingdom expands into large parts of Western Europe, but this doesn't last long due to a bunch of civil wars centered around a desire for power and land. What else would it be about? The Kingdom of the Franks breaks up in 843 AD, with the Kingdom of the West Franks forming the precursor of the France that we know today. The Kingdom of the West Franks lasts for around 140 years until the last king of the Carolinian dynasty dies and a new king is elected. It sounds like an oxymoron having an elected monarch, but that's actually how it happened. King Louis V, also known as Louis the Do-Nothing King, was 20 years old when he took the throne, and long story short, he died only a year into his reign without having any children or sense of respect. The nobility basically ran the kingdom as he was too busy being a man-child, and women were forced to endure arranged marriages to a man whom no one respected. There was a conflict over who should succeed him. One of the factions consisting of clergy and some of the nobles campaigned for Hugh Capet to take the throne, arguing that he had actual royal blood and was actually respected amongst the nobility. Hugh was eventually elected king and began the Capetian dynasty, and the Kingdom of France is officially born. This dynasty lasts for around 800 years. A bunch of nonsensical things happen, and if you know anything about French history, you know that the French Revolution is about to begin. The year is 1792. Kings go bye-bye, and the French First Republic emerges victorious for around 12 years. Then people quickly forget why they got rid of kings in the first place, probably distracted with all the starving and all the violence, and Napoleon sneaks in and proclaims himself emperor. Hooray? 
Oddly enough, this didn't change the name of France until four years after Napoleon proclaimed himself emperor. In 1808, they finally got around to changing the name to the First French Empire. Napoleon celebrated his promotion to emperor by conquering the lands around him, but his ego got in the way and he was defeated, causing the monarchy to be properly restored-ish. Napoleon came back for like 100 days and then he was defeated again, and this time he was actually kept out of France for good. The restoration of the Kingdom of France lasted until about 1830, when a second French Revolution happens, and a new Kingdom of France is formed, which lasts until 1848, when the monarch's popularity was declining, and given France's history and apparent love of revolutions, this monarch wanted to keep his head, and so opted instead to abdicate ahead of time instead of waiting for the French people to cut off his head. This leads to the French Second Republic, which only lasts for four years from 1848 to 1852, before Napoleon, this time a different Napoleon, overthrows the Republic in a coup d'etat and proclaims himself emperor, creating the Second French Empire. More hoorays? Ugh. This lasts for about 18 years, running from 1852 to 1870. This Napoleon, much like the previous one, let his ego get in the way and was defeated and exiled, leading to the French Third Republic. Oddly enough, the French Third Republic acted a lot like an empire, having overseas colonies and doing very imperial things. But who am I to argue against the French Third Republic? This rendition of quote-unquote the Republic lasted until World War II, when France was carved up by Germany into fake France and real France. World War II continued, and eventually the real France, with the welcomed assistance of the Allies, was restored to full French territory, and the French Fourth Republic was established in 1946. This is where I leave the history of France as their story develops during their time at the Eurovision Song Contest. France is a founding member of the European Broadcasting Union with the Groupe de Radio Diffusion Française, or GRF, holding EBU membership since its founding in 1950. The broadcasters responsible for France at the contest are numerous and include the following. Radio Diffusion Télévision Française, RTF, from 1956 to 1964. Office de Radio Diffusion Télévision Française, ORTF, from 1964 to 1974, TF1 from 1975 to 1981, Antenne 2 from 1983 to 1992, and France Télévision from 1993 onward. France is one of the seven founding nations of the Eurovision Song Contest in 1956. It has participated in every single contest except for two, 1974 and 1982. We'll get to their withdrawals a little later. France has never had to go through a semi-final in the 21st century as they are labeled as one of the Big Four, later the Big Five, when Italy rejoined the contest. The Big Four, or Big Five as it is now, is a term describing four, or five, countries, which get automatic qualification to the grand final of the contest in exchange for having the largest financial contribution to the EBU's budget for Eurovision. France, along with Germany, Italy, Spain, and the United Kingdom are all Big Five members, with Italy's rejoining of the contest turning the Big Four into the Big Five. 
This term was coined in 1999 and was designed to ensure that Eurovision would remain financially stable, practically guaranteeing financing by auto-qualifying certain countries with large economies who were willing and already providing large financial contributions to the European Broadcasting Union. There is debate as to whether the Big Five should be removed or not, but we're not here to have that discussion, so let's keep moving forward. Getting back to the semifinals, France had managed to avoid relegation from 1994 to 1998, including that ridiculous pre-qualification nonsense in 1996, so they can boast that they have perfect qualification, even though that isn't really saying very much. France has had an impressive record at the contest. They've reached the top 10 on 37 occasions. As of the recording of this episode, there have been 67 Eurovision Song Contests, with the 68th coming up in May of 2024. France has basically been in the top 10 for more than half of the contests. Very well done. France reached the top 5 on 26 occasions, basically 1 in 3 contests, with podium finishes reaching 7 third places, 5 second places, and 5 wins, with one of those wins being the controversial 1969 win, which I'll comment on when it comes up. France has sent a majority of their entries in French, in fact, there are actually only three entries which do not contain French at all. Their entries in 1996 and 2022 were sung in the Breton language, a southwestern Bretonic language of the Celtic language group spoke in Brittany, that little peninsula on the northwest tip of France. And in 2011, their entire entry was sung in Corsican. Their 2008 entry was primarily sung in English, but it contained some French words, and there are also nine entries that contain mixed languages, five of them being French and English, and the others being French and Antillean Creole, spoken in the Antilles in the Caribbean, French and Corsican, spoken on the island of Corsica, and French and Spanish. Finally, their 2007 entry was labeled as Franglais, which is a mixture of French and English put together. Anglais being the French word for English, and Francais being the French word for French, combining the two, Franglais. France has had six returning artists represent them in some capacity, going on to either represent other countries or having artists from other countries to represent them. Jean-Philippe, who represented France in 1959, returned in 1962 for Switzerland. Isabelle Aubrey, who represented France in 1962, returned again in 1968. Anne-Marie David, who represented Luxembourg in 1973, returned to represent France in 1979. Guy Bonnet, who represented France in 1970, returned again in 1983. And finally, Emily Satt, who represented France in 2018 as part of Madame Monsieur, returned in 2019 as a backing vocalist. As I mentioned earlier, I'm not going to comment on every single entry or historical moment that France was involved in, so instead I'm going to be skimming over the various French national finals, when they were used, their formats, and pause when famous or infamous points in France's history with the contest come up. France initially used an internal selection in the 1956 contest for both entries, completely ignoring the rules, which acted more like recommendations and choosing not to implement a national final. Check out episode 2, where I explore the rules of the very first Eurovision Song Contest. There are some interesting rules-slash-suggestions in there. 1957 rolls around, and France decides to use an internally selected national final called Septville Une Chanson, translated as Seven Cities, One Song. 
I know it sounds like an oxymoron calling it an internally selected national final, but it's kind of accurate. The vote was determined by juries, not a public vote, but the national final was broadcasted in six segments between December 21st, 1956 and February 28th, 1957. I was very fortunate to have found a video recording of the entire national final, except for a small voting section in segment four. The video is almost four and a half hours long, and I'll put a link to it on the show notes page for this episode if you wish to watch it, along with a list of known results from that year. I didn't watch the whole thing, but there are some surprises on there which tempts me to do an episode just on this national selection show, but considering there are 31 entries and perhaps it would be too much to cover the entire show, perhaps it could be a select commentary? Let me know if you would be interested in an episode on the 1957 French National Final. In 1957, they came second, and not knowing how they did in 1956, I'm sure France is pleased with this result and is aiming for their first win. And they certainly got their wish. In 1958, the broadcaster internally selected André Claveau to be their representative, but held a national final to select the song. Oddly enough, they had other singers sing the song rather than Andre, and there were only five songs to choose from. The show is called Et Voici Quelques Airs, translated as And Here Are Some Tunes. This is another internally selected national final, as a jury of 13 music and television professionals have the deciding voting power. They choose Dor Mon Amour, and they ended up winning the contest. Dor Mon Amour Le soleil est encore loin du jour Nous avons pour aimer tout le temps Et la nuit nous comporte mon amour Protégé par mes bras qui entourent Ton sommeil d'un rideau de bonheur However, France's victory doesn't last long as crisis strikes at home. The contest in 1958 takes place on March 12th, and almost exactly two months later, the May crisis takes hold of France and is one of the tipping points that completely upends the French Fourth Republic. For context, after World War II, France struggled politically to stabilize itself and recover from the war. The new constitution attempted to strengthen the executive branch of the government, but the echoes of the German invasion of France lingered, and France saw 21 changes to the office of prime minister in just 12 years. For context, at this time, the president of France is the executive head of state, which had a little bit less power compared to the powers that they have now, and the prime minister serves as the head of the government. Now, I thought the UK having the last four of its prime ministers entering into office unelected looked bad. France has got you beat. For context, the UK has been under a form of conservative government since May of 2010, almost 14 years. Compare the UK's five prime ministers in that time to France's 21 prime ministers in 12 years, and you tell me which country is dysfunctional. 
With the constant changes in prime ministers, there is obvious political instability, as each prime minister, whether they're returning or new, would bring a different political agenda, and the government could not make its mind up on anything and slowly brought France to a tipping point. As the post-war period continued, overseas colonies and territories were demanding independence and recognition, and France being France, they said no. The French military engaged to maintain order, but with a constantly changing government who orders the military to do things, the generals and higher-ups were starting to lose patience with the lack of a decisive direction for the military to go in. This political instability was being intensified by the Algerian War of Independence, which went from 1954 until their victory in 1962, gaining independence from France. It's weird to think that Algeria participated in the Eurovision Song Contest from 1956 until 1962 as an overseas department of France. While it's a shame that they haven't participated as an independent country, they are welcome to do so, as Algeria is a member of the European Broadcasting Union and has the right to participate if they so choose. Getting back to the crisis, France was basically committing atrocities in Algeria because, of course, they are, and the changing of governments back in metropolitan France left the question of Algeria's place in France up in the air. For some additional context, France's military lost a conflict in then-French Indochina just four years earlier, and it went really bad. It went so bad for France that the region basically just gained its independence after the war. Great news for Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos, but really demoralizing for France. With the conflict in Algeria reflecting similar calls for independence, the army wants to avoid another disaster. But with a lack of government direction, the army took things into their own hands and staged a coup. On May 13, 1958, just two months after the Eurovision Song Contest, a right-wing coalition force started a political uprising in Algiers, bringing together army personnel and other officials who wanted a new stable ruler to take the reins of the French government. They chose General Charles de Gaulle. Charles de Gaulle is a semi-controversial figure. On the one hand, he was an integral part of French victory in World War II. He is a war hero who chaired the provisional government during the occupation, and he led the free French forces. On the other hand, de Gaulle was the reason the UK couldn't initially join the European Economic Community, the precursor to the European Union, and he was also basically against the idea of NATO, withdrawing France from the military command structure in 1966, and he ordered all foreign military forces to leave France within one year. And to top it all off, de Gaulle openly supported the Quebec sovereignty movement with his Vive le Québec libre speech, and basically snubbed Ottawa entirely, opting instead to arrive at Quebec City on the French Navy's flagship. I'm not going to get into whether I approve or disapprove of Quebec sovereignty, I've already gone on a long enough tangent from this week's episode topic, but I will say that de Gaulle has both good and questionable qualities. Getting back to France at the Eurovision Song Contest, we transition from the French Fourth Republic, winning the contest in 1958, to the French Fifth Republic, hosting the contest in 1959. That's right, de Gaulle basically rips up the old constitution, writes a new one, and a new country is born. We welcome the French Fifth Republic into the Eurovision family, which is the France that we know and love today. 
France hosts the fourth Eurovision Song Contest in Cannes, with France placing third that year. I can't find any reliable information on their selection method that year. There's conflicting information, so I'm just going to leave that as a mystery and move on to 1960, where France decided to just ignore national finals and simply did an internal selection for the whole thing, which must have pleased executives at the broadcaster because their chosen act, Jacqueline Boyer, won with the song Tom Pilibi. Another win for France in just five years. Only three countries have won the contest at this point, with the other two being the Netherlands in 1957 and 1959, and Switzerland in 1956. 1961 comes around, and again, information is a bit confusing on this particular year. There was a national final to select the song, but I have no idea what the show was called. Apparently, the winner was chosen by 11 regional French TV centers who called members of the public to ask them for their votes. I'm going to go ahead and assume that these were not random people and instead were pre-selected individuals forming some kind of jury. They came fourth in that year's contest, so they do maintain their top five status. And at this point, I'm going to be skipping over the remainder of the 1960s as France basically internally selects all of their entries up until 1969. And you know the story, they get in the top five every year and they even win a few more times. However, things get spicy and scandalous as France's prestigious top five record is destroyed by Dominique Walter in 1966 with his entry, Chenou, that not only fails to get in the top five, not only fails to get into the top ten, it came next to last, only getting a single point from their neighbor, Monaco. It managed to beat Monaco's Teresa and Italy's Domenico Madugno, who both got null point. I seem to be talking a lot about 1966 in this podcast. I've discussed the Italian, Swedish, and Luxembourgish entries in previous episodes, and now France. Poor Dominique went down in history as the lowest placement for France all the way until 1986. Let's take a look at the 1966 French entry and see if that placement is deserved. All right, I'm going to admit I lost interest in this song about halfway through the performance. The song goes nowhere, and he has, in my opinion, zero charisma. He won't stop bobbing around. His body just looks rigid, and I'm giving an unfair critique when I say this, but his mouth looks weird when he sings the chez nous part. His lips are too open for the new part. 
When I personally say Shenu, my teeth are not touching each other and my lips make the little oo shape. His mouth looks like he's preparing to say the she sound way too early. Again, I know this is an unfair critique as you can't really do much about the instinctual shape of your mouth when you sing, but it's so prevalent in the performance it just bothered me. I see why this came next to last. I haven't listened to them on a Gask entry, so I don't know if it's worse than that or not, but this song is at least somewhat better than Italy's entry, because at least this feels lighter compared to that entry. Check out episode 7 for my thoughts on the Italian entry, episode 11 for the Swedish entry, and episode 15 for the Luxembourgish entry. The next stop on our spicy and scandalous tour is 1969, and I promise to keep the ranting to a minimum, but someday I will make an episode on this contest and there will be rants. Today, however, we focus on France and their fourth win. Here is Frida Boccara and her song Un jour en enfant. This song is absolutely gorgeous. I love her vocal range going from quiet to powerful and especially at those high notes. I tear up every time I hear that note being sung. The orchestral arrangement for the song is beautiful, especially the haunting sounds of the organ in the background. I am in love with that organ in 1969. It just feels supernatural and almost evil and sinister in a good way, haunting the very spirit of the listener into just another dimension of sound, carrying the breath of the song along some spiritual plane. I love this song. Is this song my personal winner? No. I'll leave my 1969 rankings to another episode. But the reason why this entry is on our Scandal Tour is because of Clifford Brown, the executive supervisor at the time, and his failure to do his job and step in with a tiebreak policy. Instead, he took the easy way out and let four entries be the winner in 1969. There were 16 entries that year, and 25% of the competition just straight up won the contest. This is me holding back on my ranting on Mr. Brown, which I want to do so badly, but I will reserve that for its own episode. France ends up victorious, becoming the first country to win four times. I'm going to quickly move on to 1970, where France decides to make up for lost time, having internally selected their entries for eight years. They decide to hold a national final, which lasts for seven weeks almost a week for every year that they went internal. A jury chose 16 songs out of 143 submissions to go through the show Musicolor. There were four quarterfinals consisting of four songs each. One song from each quarterfinal would advance to one of two semifinals. The top song from each semifinal would then advance to the grand final, and a winner would ultimately be selected by juries from the regional TV stations. This is the national final where Michel Thor, who I covered in episode 15, attempted to represent France and failed to make it out of the quarterfinal. France ultimately placed 8th in 1970. 
The spicy tour slows down to pass through 1971, as there were rumors that France passed up an opportunity for a fifth win. France decided to internally select their entry for that year, and according to the French Wikipedia article, there were several candidates that the French broadcaster were apparently looking at, including Jean Ferrat, Guy Bonnet, Ed Severine, that same Severine that went on to represent Monaco that year and win for the microstate. Now, I will say that the French Wikipedia article that outlines France's participation in 1971 has no source material to back up this claim, so this could be entirely made-up nonsense, but could you imagine if France was actually in this position? Imagine if they actually passed up a winning entry. Monaco was all, oh, if you don't want this, we'll take it. Was France just tired of winning? Am I speculating based on unproven rumors? Oh, we'll never know. 1972 is internally selected, and France's performance keeps getting worse with each year, going from 4th in 1970 to 10th in 1971, 11th in 1972, and 15th in 1973, where France tried to go back to national finals and just ended up making things worse. The national final for 1973 consisted of six songs sung by three people, with the eventual winner, Martine Clemenceau, having three songs, Anne-Marie Godard, who previously represented Monaco the year before, getting two songs, and Jean-Pierre Savilly, who only got one song. Imagine getting 50% of the airtime in the national final compared to the other two. Talk about an unfair advantage. But with France's poor results, things are about to get worse for the Eurovision powerhouse. While some countries at this point would try to turn around their declining results with a revamp or a desperate gimmick, France faces a different kind of problem at home. In 1974, the French president is Georges Pompidou, who replaced Charles de Gaulle after his resignation in 1969, in large part due to the counterculture protests of 1968. President Pompidou suffered from Waldenstrom's disease, which is a rare form of blood cancer. He died on April 2nd, 1974, just four days before the Eurovision Song Contest was to be held in Brighton on behalf of Luxembourg, who refused to host after their double win the previous two years. With President Pompidou's public memorial service being held on the same day as the contest, the broadcaster decided that it would be inappropriate to participate and decided to withdraw for the first time. This is the one instance where I will not argue with the withdrawal from the contest. When the head of state of your country dies so close to the contest, I really don't blame France for withdrawing. But what's so tragic about this withdrawal is that France already had a song selected. The broadcaster selected Danielle Graoul, stage name Danny, as the French representative. She was to sing the song La Vie à 25 ans, Life at 25 Years Old. I would like to do a separate mini-series on the podcast talking about withdrawn and disqualified entries, so I'll keep my commentary reserved for that future project, but I will play a sample of the song and move forward to their return in 1975. Here is Danny's song, La Vie est 25 ans. Pourquoi vous des désir quand y a de la gêne, y a pas de plaisir Moi je vis tout simplement, c'est bien la vie à 25 ans. Yeah. The 
this song was scheduled to sing in the 14th position between Ireland and Germany. France returned the next year in 1975, choosing to internally select their entry, and the results improved, returning to the top five with a fourth place that year. France gets back into the national final game, opting to select their 1976 entry using the show Concours de la Chanson Française pour l'Eurovision 1976, or in English, the French Song Contest for Eurovision 1976. Not the most imaginative title, but considering the song they chose that year, I'll give them a pass. There were two semifinals, with the top three songs from each semifinal advancing to a grand final, with all voting done entirely by televoting. France chooses Catherine Ferry with the song Un, Deux, Trois, placing second. But of course, France not being satisfied with placing second, they go all out the following year and secure their fifth and to date final win. In 1977, France used the same system, changing the name of the national final to Concours de la Chanson Française pour l'Eurovision 1977, basically changing the 1976 to 1977. Great naming scheme. Same system as last time, and the public chose Marie Miriam with the song L'Oiseau et l'Enfant. Nineteen seventy-seven was a tough year with a lot of songs that I ended up enjoying. We covered the Monégasque entry that year in episode fifteen with Michel Tour, and the Luxembourgish entry that year was Song of the Week for episode six. Having enjoyed continued success, France continued using this national final format in nineteen seventy-eight, and they were planning on using it for nineteen seventy-nine. However, the spicy and scandalous tour makes a sudden stop as the French broadcaster faces a crisis at home. Again, oh boy. This time, workers go on strike. The Société Française de Production, the French Film Technicians Union, went on strike and basically took the entire technical division out of service, preventing the airing of the semifinals and the grand final from being filmed at all. While I have the ability to speak some French words, I can't really read and comprehend it very well, so I don't know exactly what their demands were, but I'm going to assume that the broadcaster was being cheap on his technicians, and as a fellow technician, I stand in solidarity with them. There is a newsreel with all of their demands written on posters, and I don't really have time to type it all out and try and figure out what it says, so I'm just going to assume that they wanted better pay and a little bit more health coverage. The broadcaster ends up with a pool of 14 acts to choose from, and nothing to really show for it. 
They end up choosing the name with the most recognition, as Anne-Marie David jumps ship from Luxembourg and goes to represent France with the song Je suis l'enfant soleil, translated as I am the sun child. Il avait ses mains dehors et sur son dos le coton du ciel. She placed a respectable third and thankfully does not overshadow her much more successful entry in 1973. After successfully resolving the strike, the French broadcaster continues to use the same national final format for 1980 and 1981, but don't get too comfortable as our scandal tour makes yet another stop, this time in 1982, where France withdraws from the contest for the second and to date final time. This withdrawal thankfully has nothing to do with death or mourning a loss or people going on strike, but rather it has to do with the downright stupidity of another man who refuses to do his job. Meet Pierre Boutelier, someone who, in my opinion, is a snobbish and pathetic little tyrant who forced the broadcaster to abandon Eurovision. They abandoned Eurovision just before the submission date for participation and no other broadcaster could step in on time to fill it. I found a PDF written by an unknown author that put together something to summarize the 1982 contest. I'll put a link to it in the show notes if you want to read it for yourself. In that PDF, the author wrote a segment regarding France's withdrawal, which I've translated from French to English, and it says the following. Pierre Boutelier, recently in charge of TF1, had just decided that France would not participate in the 1982 Eurovision contest. There was no question of retransmitting it either, since his main argument was the absence of talents revealed by the competition, standardization, and mediocrity of the titles, and that clearly the event bored him. Neither letters from viewers nor protests from authors and composers would make him reverse his decision, and France would be deprived of Eurovision just as Eurovision would be deprived of France for the second time since the creation of the competition. Pierre Boutelier, thankfully, was removed from TF1 the following year, and with the public trust of TF1 being completely destroyed by the tyrannical actions of this moronic individual, a new broadcaster stepped up to take on the reins of Eurovision. I loathe Pierre more than Clifford Brown, which is really saying something, because I really don't like Clifford Brown. I really dislike Clifford Brown, and I question Clifford's competence on a regular basis, but at least he didn't hate Eurovision. Pierre ended up dying in 2017 and took his garbage opinions with him. Let's move on to 1983. France returned in 1983, apologizing for the hiatus. They created a new national final format, which consisted of 14 songs. The winner was chosen by a panel of TV viewers who were telephoned at random, I'm assuming these were pre-selected individuals, who were asked to vote on the songs. An interesting way of mixing a kind of a jury and televote system, and this system lasts until 1987, when the number of songs was reduced from 14 to 10. 
Despite this national final system, France's results declined after their withdrawal in 1982. And after their 1986 entry that relieved Dominic Walter of being the lowest-placing French act, the broadcaster abandons their hopes and dreams of a win and turns instead into the comforting arms of internal selections. This seemed like a good move, as they remained in the top 10 from 1988 until 1995. They almost won in 1991, tying with Sweden, earning 146 points each. And under the current tie-breaking system, France would have won. But France came second that year, and France's luck is about to run out. The 1990s continued, and France stuck with internal selections right up to 1999. France's record for the lowest-ranked entry is broken twice. 1996's entry came 19th, and 1998's entry came 24th out of 25 entries, getting only two points from the former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia and one point from Cyprus, only beating Switzerland that got null point that year. The French broadcaster has a heart attack, probably, and decides to abandon internal selections and return to using national final formats, but this does not last long either. In 1999, France unveils the national selection show Eurovision 1999, La Selection, translated as Eurovision 1999, The Selection. Why do so many of these national finals have such terrible names? I will never understand. This particular selection had 600 submissions, which is quite a lot, narrowed down to 12 entries by a selection committee consisting of two people, which I don't think this exactly constitutes a committee, which is by definition a group of people. Two people are a pair, not a group. Interestingly enough, there was a tie between song number 8 and 10, and the winner was determined by the higher televote count. Thank goodness for that. And France managed to select their entry. However, France placed 19th that year, so perhaps they should have gone with the other one. France uses this format again in the year 2000, expanding the committee to three people, so at least they're moving in the right direction, and allowed 14 entries to compete as opposed to 12. Despite the change in the committee and the number of songs, their results continue to decline, placing 23rd in 2000, only getting five points. France has another panic attack, probably, and divorces the national final system and begs the internal selection system, please take me back which they happily do, because in 2001 and 2002, France are back in the top five. Hooray! 2001's entrant Natasha St-Pierre is actually Canadian, born in Bathurst, New Brunswick, located in the northeastern part of the province. I guess when times get tough, you call Canada to deliver some good results. Saint-Jean-François' performance in 2002 keeps France in the top five, but things quickly turn south as France's results go down once again, and after doing internal selections in 2003 and 4, they quickly decide to abandon internal selections and go back to national finals again. France seems to be a lot of things. Dramatic, stylish, and seemingly disloyal. The moment their entries do poorly, France simply changes tactics, which in a song competition I don't necessarily blame them for, just... Don't do it in a real-life relationship. Despite the switch, France goes through three different national final formats in three years, and their results do not improve, hovering around 23rd and 22nd place. France at this point must be so frustrated. National finals aren't working, so they do what they do best, and they switch things up again using internal selections from 2008 until 2013. That's a long time to run without national finals, and it had mixed results. 
By the time they were in 2012 and 2013, they were back in 22nd and 23rd place again, and France decided to make the biggest mistake in their Eurovision career and go with a national final for 2014. France created Le Chanson d'abord, translated as Songs First, where a panel shortlisted three songs. Voting ran for just under a month, and with the voting system being a 50-50 split between an expert jury and televoting, with internet voting included, France ends up selecting Twin Twin with the song Moustache. And while the song is fun, kooky, and very camp, it was the disaster that broke France, as they ended up getting last place. That's right, last place, getting only two points, one point from Sweden and one point from Finland. France was so traumatized by this that they didn't even bother trying with a national final again. They went straight back to internal selections, vowing to never again use national finals. That's a lie. I just made that up for dramatic effect. What actually happened is that they internally selected their songs until 2018, when enough time had passed to heal from the pain of coming in last place for the first time in their lengthy tenure at Eurovision. In 2018 and 2019, they used the national selection show Destination Eurovision. The show consists of two semifinals with nine songs each, four of which advance to a final consisting of eight entries. France introduces an international jury to the mix, realizing that they should probably have an outsider's perspective given their fall from grace. France's results really tanked in the 21st century. They don't return in the top five in the 2010s, forever cursed to be in the middle but that all changed in the 2020s. For some odd reason, France internally selected Tom Lieb in 2020 to represent them, which I don't exactly know why. Madame Monsieur and Bilal Hassani were good entries, and they placed middle of the scoreboard. But it was futile as the contest was cancelled that year, and France decided to toss Tom to the wayside, and he never got his chance to perform on the Eurovision stage. I guess having the year off gave France time to think things through, and they decided to use a different national final. What a surprise. For 2021 and 2022, their fortunes would briefly turn around. France finally decides to just accept the stereotypes that they are known for and went full oui-oui baguette. Eurovision France, c'est vous qui décidez. Eurovision France, it's you who decide. This is the national final that they use, and I somewhat follow both of these renditions of the show in both 2021 and 2022. I loved many of the songs from the 2021 show, including Pony X's Amour Fou. Andrea Mad's Alleluia, which in my opinion was robbed and should have advanced. Same, same, 
Emily's Maeva, which was pure French Polynesian fun. And I need an entry like that at Eurovision in the future. Please, French Polynesia, come to Eurovision. And of course, Babara Pravi, which is literally every French stereotype come to life. The national final consisted of a 12-song final and an 8-song superfinal. Seriously, why not just call it a semi-final and a final? What makes this superfinal super? At any rate, France sends Barbara Pravi and secures France a second place at the latest one since 1991. However, France's fortune falters, and in 2022, they send Alvan and Ahez, where they came 24th out of 25 entries, only doing better than Germany. I don't know why this came 24th. That song was a solid entry and was totally unique in the contest. And it was certainly better than Switzerland and Azerbaijan, who had no business being in that grand final to begin with. And certainly better than Greece, whose song, in my opinion, is just bewildering to me. Finland, Czechia, Iceland, and France need to swap places with Switzerland, Azerbaijan, Greece, and I'll throw in Italy because personally I didn't like the song. And Italy also needs to be punished for their incompetence at hosting the show. And thankfully, or maybe not thankfully if you enjoyed the spicy and scandalous tour, it ends here. For we approach the end of France's history at the Eurovision Song Contest. Having no satisfaction in losing to Switzerland and Azerbaijan, France once again goes internal for 2023 and turns up the stereotype to 11, sending Lazara, who is Canadian-born in Montreal, Quebec, with the song Évidemment. I love the studio version of the song. She is beautiful and stylish, but that performance needs more of her and less of France. We get it, France. You are the land of baguettes and berets. Congrats to you. And we arrive in the year 2024, where France internally selects Slamay, Slamain, I don't know how to pronounce his name, I'm sorry, with the song Mon Amour. I'm saving my reaction for a special episode series I'll be doing in April and May, so stay tuned for that. We're almost finished with France at the Eurovision Song Contest. There's only one more thing we have to go through, which is the voting statistics from 1975 to 2015, so here we go. Looking at the voting system used in the grand final between 1975 and 2015, France received the most points from Switzerland with 145 points given, Norway with 134 points given, and Greece with 126 points given. Interesting top three countries. Switzerland, I kind of expected to give with the French similarities and all, but Norway and Greece actually surprised me. When looking at the points France gave, it tells a completely different story. From 1975 to 2015, France gave the most points to Israel, giving them 152 points, followed by Turkey with 151 points, only a single point difference. And in third place is the United Kingdom with 146 points, and Portugal coming up in fourth place with 136. 
What's really interesting about this is that from 1998 to 2002, France either gave 12 or 10 points every year to Israel, with the exception of the year 2000, where they only gave six points, and that was well-deserved. Check out episode four to find out why. After 2002, France starts giving their top points to Turkey, giving either 10 or 12 points to Turkey every year from 2003 to 2010. I don't know what happened in between 2002 and 2003, but apparently France knew what it liked. And that, my friends, is the long, very long, very scandalous history at the Eurovision Song Contest up to 2023. I am excited to see what they do for 2024, and let's hope they can find their groove after switching back and forth so many times. They ended up using 14 different national finals, if I'm keeping count correctly, over its 65 appearances, and France really hasn't been the same since the end of the 20th century. Perhaps with the East opening up, the French flavor became bland compared to the exotic spices of the East. France is trying, I'll give them that, but they really need to take some time and figure out what's best for them. If they do want to win, that's fine, but they have to go about it the right way. Speaking of going the right way, let's go right to the Eurovision Report to catch up on some Eurovision news for 2024. It's time for the Eurovision Report. Ireland's national final officially kicks off with the reveal of all six songs vying to win the Eurosong 2024 competition taking place on the Late Late Show hosted by Patrick Keelty. The Eurovision podcast ran a special series interviewing all six acts participating in the selection show, and I'll leave a link to their podcast in the show notes of the ESC 101 website, esc101podcast.wordpress.com. Royal Caribbean has been revealed as an official sponsor for the Eurovision Song Contest in 2024 and 2025. They have been listed as the official cruise line, with the partnerships of Booking.com, Idealista, Rydell, and TikTok not being renewed for 2024. Moroccan Oil and Bailey's remain sponsors for 2024. This is reported by Shanjay Jandani of ESC Today and Eurovision.tv. This has been the Eurovision Report. And now it's time for Song of the Week. This is the part of the show where I choose an entry that I find fascinating, enjoyable, or maybe it's absolute trash and I can't stand it. Since this is a Eurovision Travel Guide episode, I've gone ahead and selected a French entry to be this week's pick. Let's find out which entry gets Song of the Week. This week's Song of the Week is the French entry for 1963, Elle était si jolie, translated as She Was So Pretty, sung by Alain Barrière, composer and lyricist A. Migliani and Alain Barrière, conducted by Frank Purcell. It ended up placing 5th with 25 points, getting 5 points from Yugoslavia, 4 points from the Netherlands, Italy, and Switzerland, 2 points from Austria and Monaco, and 1 point from Germany, Spain, Belgium, and Luxembourg. 
This song to me was groundbreaking for Eurovision. Never before had Eurovision been done in a television studio, and the effects used in this year's contest is akin to modern Eurovision, with camera splitting being commonplace today. In 1963, this would have shocked some viewers, and it certainly shocked me. The song's visual presentation is absolute perfection and is the best that year. As Alain sings the song, there is a woman twirling around, which on its own would be absolutely lame, but the camera frames it in such a way that she looks like a ghost, a memory of a woman so beautiful it haunts the dreams of the singer. Lyrics translated by Carlos Martinez on the Digilu Thrush website read, she was so pretty that I didn't dare to love her. She was so pretty I can't forget her. She was too pretty when the wind took her. She was so pretty I'll never forget. Talk about falling in love with a woman out of your league. Look, Alain is handsome enough that if he had just a little bit of courage and took the risk, I'm sure he could have made that connection. But instead, this song is a haunting memory that has made a lasting impression on me. I'd have to re-watch the 1963 contest, but for me, this is on top of the list even beating Denmark, who actually won that year. This week's Song of the Week goes to Alain Berger and his lovely twirling companion. Wow, that was probably the densest episode that I've ever put together. These large countries with such extensive histories have so much going on, and I've skipped over plenty of juicy and interesting details. I'm a little bit scared when I have to do countries like Germany, the UK, Italy, and Spain, if you've made it this far into the episode, thank you so much for sticking with me this week, and hopefully you've managed to take breaks as you need them. If you'd like to complain to me about the length of this week's episode, or if you'd like to share your thoughts, whether positive, negative, or neutral, you can get in touch with the podcast in several different ways. We are on Instagram at ESC101podcast. You can also send us an email to ESC101podcast at gmail.com. We're also on Tumblr, but honestly, I don't post enough on there, so it's pretty thin content-wise. You can check out the links to various videos and sources on the show notes page for this episode on our website, esc101podcast.wordpress.com. Please consider leaving us a review on your favorite podcast platform of choice, as it helps us to get discovered by other Eurovision fans and history enthusiasts. And be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss out on future episodes. Next week's episode is going to be a very special episode where it won't just be me. I'm actually going to be joined by some very special guests for the first time right here on ESC 101. So be sure to stay tuned to find out who will be joining me next week as we journey beyond the stars of the Eurovision Song Contest. You have been listening to ESC 101. See you next time. 